When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even to a physical. Let's check your weight. Hop on the scale. Look at that. You're down a few pounds. Oh yeah, must be the new carbon fiber wheels. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. I'm going to prescribe 91 octane for your engine knock, and we'll want to see you again in 3,000 miles. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to Season 3 of The Agile World, where we discuss customer and employee experience, organizational and workforce transformation, and how business can adapt and continually improve in an Agile age. The Agile World podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the relationship between customer experience and employee experience and how companies need to provide their teams with the right tools to make both successful, as well as to enable success in digital product rollouts. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Jonathan Hensley, author, speaker, co-founder, and CEO at Emerge, and author of Alignment, Overcoming Internal Sabotage and Digital Project Failure. Jonathan, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Yeah, looking forward to, to talking here. So let's uh, let's get started by talking about this relationship between customer experience and employee experience. Uh, how would you define this relationship? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think something that really has to be well-defined. So the way I look at it is great customer experience is a direct result of the employee experience. Or another way to think of it is employee engagement and empowering uh, people to do their job to the best of their ability. What are some of the challenges that occur but uh, you know, because of this relationship between the two, between CX and EX? Well, I think a lot of time there's this kind of duality that happens within an organization where there is many functions are really focused on one side of things that are driving you know revenue and supporting customer experience and then there's the other side that's really thinking about operational spending and trying to mitigate costs and the reality is is great customer experience is a and employee experience is the driver of both it really does drive revenue and efficiency and so when you look at depending on what type of research you you know are are reading you know highly engaged employees are out um organizations are outperforming their competitors by anywhere between 100 to 147 percent so that a level of engagement that you can get with uh an empowered workforce a team of of collaborators and people that are creating and innovating and problem solving are incredibly important to the health of an organization and really making sure that they can, you know, do the right work at the right time in the best possible way. When we talked before uh, this interview, you, you had highlighted that the product team has a, a pretty key role in this, in this relationship, not only between customer experience and employee experience, but even, you know, individual, you know, with employees needing to get their work done and, you know, product is so key to some of these things. And, and I would say 
in a lot of the material and a lot of the, the talks that I hear about CX and EX often overlooked. Um, can you expand on this and, and just, you know, kind of kind of your take on, on why this is so critical to understand? Now, I think, you know, product leaders today are being asked to do more than ever. And when you think about whether it's, a, you know, externally facing product or internal, you know, product teams are bringing together this unique set of skills around business acumen, critical design thinking and problem solving and critical problem solving with technology and, and engineering. And so it allows them to really, you know, take an incredible point of view on experience design and implementation, no matter what side of it it's on. And what you're seeing today is the highest performing companies are doing a couple of things. They're tearing down now the silos of, across functions of the organization. So one example of that might be around, for example, customer acquisition, something that traditionally falls into the camp of marketing and sales. Well, more and more organizations are moving towards product-led growth or product-led modernization if it's from the internal side. And that requires product teams to be owners of these experiences and then in deep collaboration with marketing and sales collaboration with you know hr collaboration with customer success teams or uh you know other uh supporting uh employee experience teams and so the product teams becomes almost this nucleus for being able to really deliver on these experiences because they're not just being out asked to create the solutions they're being asked to maintain them and to and continuously drive innovation and improvement and it since so they're working on both sides of both the customer experience and employee experience at all times and that becomes so crucial when you think of the viability of an organization i mean one challenge that a product team is being asked to do today is a, is a really good example is information in the organization is usually siloed or distributed across systems and more and more organizations are trying to consolidate that information or integrate those systems so they have a true source of truth um, for whatever it may be. We'll just use customer information as, as the example. Well, if you provide that source of truth, what you're doing for employees is you're empowering them to have a complete picture of the customer, which means they can answer questions better. They can make better decisions in, about how to support them or to drive you know, the, the benefits of your product or service and deliver on your promises it unlocks so many possibilities for employees and moves them from being reactionary to being able to be proactive because the tools are giving them the, in essence, the critical context and information necessary to do their job at the best of their abilities. Do you think that the product teams often see their role as, you know, cause there there's, We've kind of highlighted that there is some kind of disconnect. I guess what what do you think it is? Is it that the product teams don't necessarily see their role as as so central, or is it the inverse that they're kind of not given the credit um, they deserve, or maybe a combination of both? Like where where do you see the biggest breakdown? Well, I, I'd say there's two major things that I see. One is they're asked to do a lot, but not necessarily given the authority or power within the organization. Yeah. So that's one issue that, that I see quite often. 
The second one is that many product teams are still set up to be delivery focused mm. versus outcome focused. And you see organizations that are really thriving, I mean, excelling in every way, their teams are all outcome focused. They've really said, okay, we understand deliverables have to get done, timelines are important, resources are need to be critically managed, but they consider those table stakes. What's more important is, will these deliverables move the organization forward? Will it help employees do their job better? Will it provide a better customer experience? Will it make the company more resilient to competition? You know, they're really looking for what is the critical outcome that has to take place for all of this effort to be worthwhile. And when that mental shift is so critical to really making sure that the teams are set up for success and are aligned to deliver the results that uh, leaders are asking for. So let's uh, let's change gears for a little bit and talk about some of the concepts in your book uh, called Alignment. Uh, your book discusses why many digital product rollouts fail to meet objectives, uh, as well as how leaders can have greater success. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you learned in your interviews for the book, as well as your own experience? Sure. So, you know, the book was kind of 20 years in the making, to be honest. So yeah. the original idea behind the book, uh, you know, was to really do a deep dive into understanding why so many products and services fail. And especially within the context of digital product and digital transformation. And when I really started to dig into understanding the root causes of failure, you saw that there was just this constant theme coming to the surface of those who had dealt with this, uh, this, you know, these failure and the repercussions of that failure and that, you know, misalignment was preventing the best ideas from being realized. It was eroding teams and it was crippling great leaders and ruining entire organizations in some cases. And so when we really started to look at alignment, we started to look at, well, what's the difference between leaders and organizations that are constantly beating the odds? And to put that in context, depending on the body of research you look at it, and when it comes to product success, anywhere between about 72 to 90% of new product initiatives fail, which is a staggering amount. Wow. So if, if it's that, if the failure rate is that high, what are we not learning that we need to be learning? And usually the concepts are talked about in, well, there wasn't market fit. Well, there's a lot of things that happen developing a product or service, you know, to, that you can do along the way to establish, you know, markers of success and indicate market fit. So in interviewing these leaders who were beating the odds, not just once or twice, but you know, a dozen times throughout their careers or organizations that were not one-offs, you know, they, and leaders who had built organization, one successful company, sold it, starts another one, another successful company. You know, this issue of alignment was right at the surface. And so there, some of the failures that they were able to overcome with alignment were issues of, they really made sure that they knew who their customer was and the true scope of the problem that they were solving for that customer and the impact that problem had on their lives or the work that they did. They really could get to the root cause of, as our organization scales, that we have to manage expectations and challenges that come about when you take optimism or 
a, a bullish approach or ego and how that gets in the way of proper expectations, which is so critical for teams to be grounded in the work that they do. Or being able to understand that siloed knowledge is an inhibitor of success. And so you need to be having people actively working to break down those silos or build bridges between the functions of that organization to pull out that incredible institutional knowledge so that everybody can benefit from that opportunity. Where does process fit into this? I mean, so, you know, definitely, you know, products can't um, be successful on their own, right? So, you, you know, definitely you mentioned the, the people component of it, but how does, you know, how can process help as well? Well, I think process is absolutely essential. I mean, one example is, is that um, strategy. So great product strategy. You know, strategy is one of these things that's kind of a buzzword in a lot of ways. It's often misunderstood. I mean, there's a whole subgenre of content talking about strategy in all of its different contexts. Um, but some of the basics are strategy is often mistaken for goals or mistaken for uh, planning. Yeah. And these things, none of that has to do with strategy. Um, and so when you build, you know, processes around things, it creates a, a, in that context, without a solid foundation of strategy, you are setting up a false sense of security, which is dangerous. So process, I think, is incredibly important. And the process of strategy is just a great example of it. Strategy is not a one-time thing. It's episodic. If you're building a product and your market moves fast, you might be working on strategy all the time. In other cases, maybe it's once a year. It just depends on how fast your organization and how fast your market moves. But there's an essential foundation to great strategy that is kind of the underpinning to um, everything that you do. And it's part of that process or one of the processes as an example is you know, never falling in love with your solution and making sure that you fall in love with the problem, mm -hmm. that continuous discovery and driving of insight to understand not just what your customers do, but why they do the things that they do with your product or service and how the, the challenges of that you're helping them resolve are impacting them in their organization. Yeah. Um, that's a never ending process talking about measuring success, right? So, um, you know, it, you said the, which I think the, that figure is just staggering that, you know, so, so high a percentage of, of product rollouts fail. So we kind of know when something doesn't work, we might kind of feel when something is working, but how do you actually measure success of, you know, whether it's digital transformation, whether it's product rollout or, or some combination of, of, of all of it, how do you measure things so that you don't get too far along and realize looking back that you failed or, you know, or something like that? Like, what are some of the metrics that, that work to, to, to meaningfully measure some of this stuff? Well, I think there's a couple of ways to go about it. So from a product, like a core product strategy perspective, measurement of progress needs to be something that's tangible and owned by the team. And so you're looking for something like that, a leading indicator. So an example is a lot of times we see, you know, we'll, we'll measure performance or success by, by revenue or by how many customers we acquire in the next, you know, 60 days or six months. 
And the, the challenge with that is that those are all leading or lagging indicators. They don't give us any opportunity within that time period to really start to refine and make adjustments as necessary. And the product team might help influence customer acquisition, but they don't actually control uh, customer acquisition. That's delegated to another function. They're, they're a key contributor. So it's difficult for a product team to start to then, who's being held accountable to a metric that they can't control. Yeah. So we really tried to look at, well, what are the things that they can control and what are the things that they can help with? And so one of the strategies that I'm a big fan of um, is this idea of product-led growth. Um, the, the concept of product-led growth is a term that was uh, coined by OpenView, which is a, a venture capital group out of Boston. And you know, how do you create a product that's so sticky, that's so valuable that it drives its own uh, measure of growth? And if, for example, if your marketing team and sales team is doing a phenomenal job at acquiring customers, but they're not actually adopting the product, your revenue is going to show it. So you've missed yeah. that metric of revenue. So we love to look for measures that, you know, what, what can we understand is the um, user doing within the first seven days, 14 days, 30 days? What are the stages of product adoption? What are the levers that a product team can pull on to improve the product and to drive retention? And then when they see certain things happening, trigger that to maybe like a customer success team that says, oh, I better reach out and see if I can support this. We see that, you know, if this isn't happening, there may be a point of friction or struggle that the, you know, the customer is going through. Let's make sure we're there for them. These are the kinds of things that product teams do control um, often and can really be incredible measures for making sure that they're always moving the organization and the product forward. What are some of the ways that they can just try to ensure success from the beginning? Like what are, what are some things that are often overlooked um, when, you know, when there's still time to plan and, and things like that? Well, so one of the things that we see the most often, which I think is a good indicator that drives towards market fit when you talk about specifically rollout is this idea of who is the user of the product. And it's so often that that can start with like, oh, well, this is valuable for anybody. Well, that may be true, but if it's something for everybody, then it might have no, not enough. Then maybe you don't understand either the problem well enough or you're too gener generic. And so you're going to get lost in the just the noise of, of the market space. So we really look at first off, who have you really brought focus to your product? Do you really know who your core customer is? The, you know, the group that has the absolute most demand for your product or service. Does that group have the size and spending power necessary to be successful? Are they identifiable? Can you actually find them and connect with them in a in a reasonable and scalable way? Are these uh, individuals or organizations accessible through the channels that you uh, you know can communicate through or participate in? And do they have a similar behavior for the way that they buy or use a similar product or service? Those are kind of cornerstones, if you will, of making sure that you're focused on a core market that you can actually get traction with as you roll it out. And so we kind of first look at those fundamentals and really help leaders understand that. 
The next piece is really understanding the buyer journey itself. And if you want to understand that core customer, what's the journey that you're taking them through from building awareness to evaluating your product or service, adopting that product or service, and then uh, driving retention. And then you get into this retention life cycle, which is all about what we talked a little bit about, You know what happens in those seven days, 30 days, 90 days, and so on. And so that becomes really key to understanding how you build viability into the way you think about designing your product, testing your product before it goes to market, and then eventually bringing it to market. And then you have the mechanisms in place, the processes uh, to really make sure that you can be gathering continuous insight and feedback and fine tuning that as your product is, is gaining exposure in the market. Well, one, one last question uh, before we wrap up here. Um, as a fellow author, I always like to, you know, hear about uh, the process people go through to write their books. So, um, you know, at a, at a meta level, I guess, can you talk about um, the process of writing, um, what you learned through that process, and even, you know, what you might do differently next time? Absolutely. So the process of writing the book, I found absolutely just exhilarating. My favorite part of the process was definitely for me doing the research and the interviews, yeah. being able to connect and learn from people is, is something that uh, I just really, really enjoy. I think what I didn't account for not having been an, uh, uh, an author of a book before this is just the sheer amount of time to distill down the content so that you can make it accessible uh, to people. Uh, you know, that, that time and that commitment was much more than I anticipated. It took me two years to, to write the book. Part of that due to, uh, uh, COVID, (laughs) but, um, the, if I could have done it differently, I think what I would have done is I would have maybe just stepped away from the business, uh, for, you know, um, kind of planned increments where I could really just deep dive. Because the more I had that space versus working in smaller chunks, I learned that I could just how much more I could get done and how much more I just even personally enjoyed the writing experience and the process. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it's uh, I've done it um, kind of both ways. And I agree with you having having some space lets you get a get a handle on the bigger picture. Right. So sometimes working incrementally like I can. I can knock out a chapter or part of a chapter here or there, but um, to really kind of make sense of, of the book, um, you know, from start to finish, like, did you have a, did you have a sense of like the arc that the the book was going to have until you were able to take some space and, and do that? Or, you know, how did, how did kind of the structure of the book come together? Well, so ironically, I originally, the original title for the book was friction and I was going to write it about, just the research on failure. Yeah. It, but when I went through and I actually had hundreds of pages of transcripts uh, taped up in a large conference room and I started going through and just highlighting and going through all of it, I found that the content found uh, its own alignment basically. And I realized that there was a much different narrative and arc that needed to, to unfold here. And from having interviewed all of these uh, wonderful people, uh, from all these different disciplines. And so that was really interesting to me because I, I came in with one idea and I realized it's, that I just had to let that piece go. It became a p- part of the book, but not really the book itself. I really had to let 
the insights that I thought were most valuable and what was coming up thematically through these interviews and these people who had consistently overcoming these odds were bringing to the surface in their conversations. And that structure uh, of, uh, and being able then to look at the, how that insight could be organized collectively became the structure for the book. That's cool. Yeah, I, I've, I found it. Sometimes these things take a life of their own. That's and that's so that's so good that you had the freedom to be able to to pivot a bit there and, and tell the story that kind of became apparent. Right. <laughs> it's that's that's great to hear. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful to have the freedom. And, you know, candidly, you know, uh, last year, one of the uh, blessings of having the extra time was to make sure that the narrative could, you know, come to fruition in the way that uh, was, you know, coming through from all of the interviews and the, the research. Yeah. Great. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for, for joining. Um, for those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, the best way to uh, stay in touch is um, come find me on uh, LinkedIn, I'm posting content and engaging uh, in Q&As there all the time. They can also go to emergeinteractive.com, and uh, we have a ton of free resources for product leaders or people interested in improving their existing products or services um, that's available there. And uh, they can sign up for a monthly newsletter that's available as well. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Jonathan Hensley, uh, author, speaker, co-founder and CEO at Emerge and author of Alignment, Overcoming Eternal Sabotage and Digital Product Failure. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, from my website at theagile.world. Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards.